Welcome back to the Music History Project. This is the first of a three-part series of Pioneers of Rhythm and Blues. Welcome to the Music History Project. We are your hosts. I'm Dan Del Fiorentino. I am Suzanne Del Fiorentino. And I'm Alex Rosner. All of the content of our podcast is based on the Oral History Collection, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. This collection is over 5,000 interviews and growing. To learn more, check it out on nam.org library. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I just want to start with a little caveat that this is not an inclusive podcast. It's three parts, but we couldn't possibly include everybody that we've interviewed over the years about rhythm and blues. This is just a selection of those that we haven't heard from a lot in previous podcasts or those that really go well together. Uh, Also a little caveat that there's a lot of folks that I wish we had interviewed over the years that we never did interview, but we're going to be talking about some of their contributions today, in particular Fats Domino, uh, who I really wanted to interview, but it didn't work out for me. But um, these pioneers of rhythm and blues had a lot to do with the beginnings of rock and roll, which we're going to be hearing about. Um, To me, I think what we're going to be covering in this three-part series is... um, the beat, the rhythm and blues beat, as represented by the drummer James Gatson, and the dance behind it, represented by Archie Bell of the Drells, uh, the importance of the backup singer in rhythm and blues, uh, and we'll be sharing the story of Jules Bass. And then, of course, the harmonies, the king of doo-wop is going to be joining us in this podcast, and that's Fred Paris, who not only wrote one of the biggest hits in doo-wop music in the still of the night, but was a constant professional all throughout his entire life. Then we're going to be including the groove because you can't have rhythm and blues without the groove and that'll be um, represented by the great Earl Palmer. Arrangements and the songs themselves, of course, a very important ingredient in rhythm and blues, and that'll be represented by the great Dave Bartholomew. And finally, it's that sound, right? You recognize that sound. Either it's the beat of the drums, that's that wailing guitar, it's those effects of the amplifier, or it's the music and lyrics. There's all together, I think, it's that sound and um, and its influence. And that is represented to me by Mr. Personality himself, Lloyd Price. So if you put them all together, those are the uh, the folks that we're going to be hearing about in the next three episodes of the Music History Project. And I'm super excited about it because these are important stories to tell. So to begin all of this, I would like to welcome the team, Suzanne, Alex, and joining us to help us again with the pre-production, Jonah. Hello. 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 So let's get started, you guys. That's a big mouthful of an introduction, but I just really wanted to set the tempo because this is so exciting to me. Uh, What an honor it's been for me to have interviewed these folks. So um, maybe we can have Jonah's perspective on the first person that we're going to be hearing about. So we're going to start with Archie Bell, and we're going to just hear a little bit about... um, his early influences and um, the importance of his son tying up and exactly how that came to be. So let's hear from Archie Bell. 
we listened to all the popular, what my mother called it popular music, you know, and she wanted, to, she loved Billie Holiday. She wanted to be like Billie Holiday. And uh, she told me one day that we were sitting talking and she said, you know, I always wanted to be a popular singer and everything. And since I started having all you boys, my mother had seven sons, seven sons. And at the time when she was talking to me, it was about four of us. And she said, I started having all these boys, so I, I can't do it, you know. Maybe you, she said, I kind of just suggested to me, you know. I, I really didn't understand what she was talking about, what she was getting at. But I thought about it after a while, you know, and, and uh, after what she was really telling me, I didn't get a chance, so maybe you, you know, she just tagged me one day, you know. And uh, we kind of got kind of close, and I used to sit in the church. I started in um, Corinth Baptist Church. My grandfather had eight brothers, and they used to sing from a book from Africa, a little book. It had, all it had was music notes, and it, all the music was a cappella. You know, it had a foot stomping and a tambourine, you know, to keep up the rhythm and everything. But I sit in the choir and everything and listen to those music, and, you know, you, you become endeared to them, you know. It's, like uh, it really your beginning. And if you listen to the uh, Lady Smith Black Mombasa from Africa with Paul Simon, that music was just like that, you know. So I got a real early, uh, early uh, development on music that I didn't really know what I was listening to, but when I got it and everything and put one and one and two together, the music started in church when we went to the fields where the people worked, you know, they sang. And when they got to the railroad men, it was like, uh, from the gospel, they went, uh, went to, like, secular music, you know. Like, what the men would work, they would sing work songs and stuff like that. And, and then blues developed, you know. And everybody in America, black, was, black people of color was living the blues, you know. So that's why I got, I got a real good early start. And... And uh, what I had, what I found that I had was God's gift, you know. It was God's plan and everything, and not too many people have that, right. you know. Like Roy Head, he's got God's gift. That was planned before he was even born through God, through music, you know. And uh, I had a lot of experiences, and at this time and point in my life, I understand everything that happened to me, why it happened to me, for sort of reason, not a season. Well, like I said, my mother was my early experience in being around my people from the church, but it had a show here. I was about 17 years old, and Jackie Wilson and Sam Cooke was on a show here at the Coliseum. I went to the show and everything, and after, after that show that night, I said to myself, I was sitting in the audience when Jackie Wilson came on. I said to myself, I don't know how I'm going to get there, but that's what I'm going to be doing the rest of my life. This, that was my thought, you know, dream and everything. <clears throat> Sam Cooke came on with no introduction, nobody moved. You know, the band started playing. It was like a steel pick. I'm sitting there looking, and the waitresses and everybody was like, you know, it really freaked me out. When Jackie Wilson came out there, it looked like they were shooting the women down with machine guns, you know. And he didn't do nothing but walk on the stage, and he looked left and looked right, and the women just went like, ah. <laughs> and I said to myself, I said, oh, you know, what, what, is, what, that, uh, what they got, you know, what it takes and everything. And later on in life, I learned the same thing that my mother told me. You have to learn how to do it from your soul, you know. When you go on and entertain people, and people don't understand, it's a different, different between an entertainer and a singer, you know. You have to learn how to entertain and have a rapport with people and everything. That's what we did, you know, in the Baptist church, you know. Everybody was participating. When the music started, it was on, you know. And they just took that 
from the, from the church to the field, the working fields, change the name to protect the innocent, which is Jesus Christ. Instead of saying, I love you, uh, Jesus Christ, I love you, baby. And the blues was developed. And the first band that I sang in was a group called Americans. It was 1961, American 61, and every year they would change the name to 62. I think that went up to about 65. And Comrade Johnson's uh, son, Bobby Johnson, was one of the, um, he was one of the musicians. He was a bass player in the band, a guy named Gary Cooper, Timothy McRae. But we had a little band that we used to work out at the Club Belisa, uh, Club Matinee, you know, places where we was too young to even be in a nightclub, you know. And we used to go to the gig and everything. And uh, we'd sit down in the car when showtime came. We came on, we was like the house band. We came on and played, and after we get to playing, we would go back in and other entertainers, you know, Johnny Taylor, Bobby Blue Bland, and at the club, the Lisa. And uh, when I was in, we was in school, uh, uh, Cashmere, the first year the Cashmere opened, after the first year, they changed the zoning laws, and everybody who lived on the south side of Crane had to go to Wheatley. So that put, I was living on the south side, so I had to go to Wheatley. I really didn't like it, but uh, always, we would always uh, get together at E.O. Smith School, who went my junior high school, We'd always get together and start doing talent shows. That's where we formed the drills and everything. And um, we used to end up all the talent shows, and we would win, you know, f most uh, first place most of the talent shows and everything. Everywhere we went, whether we went to Worthing, Yates, uh, uh, all those places, uh, Washington, Elmore, all those places, we would win talent shows, you know. And we kept doing that right up to the uh, to the year then. We did a, a beach and uh, we did a show in Sylvan Beach in Laporte, Texas and everything. And Skip Lee had put the show on and everything. He was like our manager at that time. And um, we was in the dress room. He, came, he had about 1,500 people at the show that night and everything. We entertained. So he came in the dress room and said, y'all want to cut a record? Everybody said, yeah, you know, without even asking our parents or anything, you know. Well, we said, yeah, yeah, we'd like to do something, you know. And that's how, you know, Tighten Up got started. and. You know, got uh, got you know, got kicked in and everything. We never thought it would be as big as a hit, but just guys trying to get it together. But I always, you know, uh, loved a lot of entertainers, even not Jackie Wilson, but back in the days, I go all the way back to the twenties and the thirties. We you know had people like Cab Calloway, Duke Ellington, Nat King Cole. I always loved them guys. But when I saw Jackie Wilson and Sam Cooke, I said, I got to be doing this. 1967, right at the end of 60, uh, it was released and everything. We was in, uh, in the studios messing around recording uh, at the time, and out of Jones Studios, just Jones and Nashville Sounds out in the studio. Work. And uh, one day that uh, I was living with this guy named Billy Butler, one of the drill men, and about uh, a day before that, I got one of those greetings from Uncle Sam. I said to myself, Greeting. I thought, you know, I said, I know it's not Christmas. It was like in August or September. I know it was Christmas time. So when I found out that the people had to go down and report to, the, you know, the board and everything, and I was, I, I think I was at one of the most depressed time in my life, you know, and everything. I was, I was saying, I said, here I am, get ready, you know, get ready, starting August Sam. I knew they were gonna get me, you know, and I was at a depressed mood and. Uh, Billy, Billy came to the door, the radio was playing one day. I was laying on the couch like, woe is me, and that woe is me attitude. 
Billy came and do it. He was doing a little dance, and for a minute, I forgot about all my problems. You know what he was doing? I said, what you doing? He said, I'm doing a tighten up. He talked like Pee Wee. He was, he was a black Pee Wee Herman. That's what he was, you know, the kind of guy. Where he, he said, I'm doing a tighten up, and so I started laughing. Uh, the TSU Tornados uh, used the song Tighten Up. They used it like a break song. That's what the, the music, they were the ones who appeared the music for Tighten Up. And about two, uh, about two weeks before that, we were in San Antonio doing a show. And uh, I heard a disc jockey say nothing good ever came from Texas because of the Kennedy assassination. So I said to myself, that's not true, you know. So that's why when I put in there, how about I'm watching Bill Drill from Houston, Texas. We're not on the dance. We sang as good as, I mean, we, I was saying we dance as good as we want and everything. I want the people to, to know that something good did come from Texas, you know. And... Um, just not, not, not thinking, just, you know, the, the pen, you know, pen that idea, but that's what made uh, me the man who put Houston on the world map, you know, all over the world. I, I was in the New Guinea rainforest once. <coughs> the guy ran up to me in a bone in his nose and said, Archie Bell, let's tighten up. And took off, he was out there hunting birds with a blowgun, you know. I said to myself, if I can be in New Guinea in the rainforest and the guy come and say, tighten up, I, I know I made it. <laughs> All right, folks, that was Archie Bell of the Drells. Uh, we dance just as good as we walk. I love that line in his song, Tighten Up. Um, but it's sort of ironic to me because right after that song was recorded in 1968 for Atlantic Records, um, he was drafted and was actually in Vietnam, shot in the leg and held up in the hospital in Vietnam the very week that song went number one. And by the time he got back from the army, Tighten Up had sold 4 million copies. <laughs> That's kind of amazing to me. By the way, a little love to Billy uh, Butler, who co-wrote that song that was recorded at Jonestown Studios in Houston. Uh, really, really big hit and uh, really remarkable to, uh, to know that his career continued after that. They uh, the Drills recorded um, Can't Stop Dancing with uh, Gamble and Tough, two powerful songwriter producers we were lucky enough to interview over the years from Philadelphia. So I uh, just wanted to make that little addition to Archie Bell and the Drills. Where are we going next, Jonah? Well, on the opposite spectrum, we have someone that didn't like traveling at all, and that was James Gadsden. So we're going to go and listen to... Um, him explained some of the stepping stones that started his career. And my first professional gig with a hit recording was Hank Ballard and the Midnighters. He was a guy that originally wrote the twists. You know, so I, I went with him and the first gig that I had with him was over in the, the Nassau Bahamas. It was pretty difficult for me because when I first got there, they thought I was somebody else. The lady screamed and, that's him, you know. Some guy had impregnated three ladies over there. He was from Chicago, but she just knew it was me for some reason or another. She chose me, so <clears throat> the two weeks that we were over there, I had to be very careful. I mean, it had gotten, it had gotten all over, over the Nassau, and um, I, I couldn't go anywhere by myself. But during that time, I'm learning uh, you know, more, uh, you know, we did, the band was a very hip band. We would practice cold train and all the hip jazz things. And um, they, uh, Hank Ballard would, would let us play that before the sh before they came on to do their, their show. 
So I uh, I got disenchanted with that because of the traveling. I like we would be in Los Angeles and had to be in Little Rock, Arkansas, the morning. We were going by car. And uh, they would be driving 120 miles an hour. I mean, I didn't like it. They called me the Cobra because I wouldn't sleep because I'm watching them. You know, I'm scared. But we'd make it, and we'd do the gig, but I got a little tired of it. Hank Ballard was a, a great uh, mentor for me. He would let me sing before they came out. He, he wanted to take me to Barry. He knew Barry Garter. He wanted to take me to Motown. But I just couldn't hang that long. I just I didn't like the rules, so I went back. And I worked with my brother for a minute, and then the organ trio started to come in. And so I got that together, and I started playing with a lot of organ trios in Kansas City. And um, I got to see a lot of the famous people, Jack McDuff at the time, Jimmy Smith, uh, Larry Young, uh, Don Patterson. I mean, just, you know, and so... By it being Kansas City, by it being rural, I mean, in the 30s, it was a great time because they had all the, the mafia had all the uh, big jazz people coming through town. But it was great, to, you know, because people would come through there and you'd get to learn and watch them and everything. So, I and, and people were dancing the jazz then. They were dancing, you know, they had the, the, the swing thing, the organ was played. And so I got a call from uh, some friends of mine who were on the Dean Martin show, they called the Curtis Brothers, and they said, come on out. Well, I'm thinking that they, you know, in Kansas City, I didn't know, I'm thinking that they had become big, you know, successful artists. And I came out and they didn't have a really, no uh, living facilities for me or nothing. It was pretty, it was very, very rough, you know, and uh, it took me about five years before I got in the studio. But, uh, How did that come about? Well, I had any, I had no idea that they had studio musicians, and I did work with a guy by the name of Chuck Rowan, who was from my hometown. I worked with him for about a year or two. We would sing, we'd do the four freshman stuff and sing and do that at the dinner, the dinner clubs at that time. Um, I met a guy when I, I left that out. I, I came to California a couple of times. On the circuit, San Francisco, Los Angeles, you know, we'd go to Omaha, Denver, and like the Chitlin circuit, as they call it, the organ trios. And I met a gentleman by the name of John Boudreau, who was a famous drummer in New Orleans. He was, you know, and he was a jazz drummer too. And we happened to meet, um, I think I was playing with Roy Brown. Uh, not Roy Brown, uh, wasn't Roy Brown, what was this guy's name? Merry Christmas, baby. Charles uh, Brown? Huh? Charles Brown. Yeah, I, I wasn't playing with him. I had met him. I got to play with him some years later, though. And uh, the guy that I came to California with, Frank Edwards, who's the organist, he loved Charles Brown, and he had known him. So we were going up to this club, and downstairs from the club was a jazz club, and I met the drummer, and we talked, and uh, he heard me play. He said, well, man, I like the way you play. So I took his number, and I went back to Kansas City. Um, and I didn't think too much of California. You know, when you think of California's got the gold bricks in the streets, you, it wasn't about that at all when I come out. You know, I didn't think about that. It was, you know, it was not that at all. And so I uh, 
got the call later on. I was working in the biggest black club in Kansas City called OGs. And we got to play, you know, we played everything back there. And uh, I came to California and it was pretty rough. And I found John Moudreau's number. And he got, he said, man, I'll get you a gig. So he got me a gig with a gentleman by the name of Charles Wright, who was a studio guitarist, left-handed. He said, hey, man, do you want a gig? I said, yeah. So just watch me, just play fours and don't play no fields. So I would just play, keep time. And eventually I started to hear what was going on. And that was a good thing because it enabled me to create my own style, you know. And so I got that together and, and uh, Bill Cosby was instrumental in us getting a record deal. I played with him. We got to be the Watts 103rd Street Rhythm Band. And uh, I left there. And I just, uh, during that time, I met Bill Withers over to Charles Wright's house. I think Bill Withers, I think Charles might have managed him for a week or two, but he knew him or whatever it was. And I just, I didn't do anything for about a year. and. Uh, Eventually, the other guys started leaving uh, the Watts band. So we would, they would come over to my house and in the garage practicing and, and putting together songs with Bill. And um, went into the studio. We've been listening to James Gadson, and I just wanted to mention a few of the hits he's on, a few of my favorites. Uh, 1970, Charles Wright's Express Yourself. Hmm, good one. Uh, Bill Withers' Still Bill album, 1972, a, a few of my favorite songs, Use Me, Lean On Me, Who Is He and What Is He to You, and Damn, what are some of your favorites? <laughs> well, I love all of those, of course, but he was also uh, playing drums on I Want You with Marvin Gaye, 1976. Don't Cry Out Loud, Melissa Manchester, her biggest hit of all time, but that was recorded in 1978 in Los Angeles with the great James Gatson on drums. Tina Marie's Star Child, 1984, that was a big hit for her. Beck's Sea Change from 2002. And uh, Justin Timberlake, oh my gosh, that album was so great. In 2006, when Future Sex a Love Sounds came out, that was such a big, big hit. And that was James on most of those tracks. I don't think he was on all of them, but almost all of them. Uh, Kelly Clarkson, uh, Wrapped in Red, 2013, Hello. And then six albums with the great Smokey Robinson, including one of my all-time favorite classic Smokey tunes from 1979, Cruisin'. Love it. So that just gives you a little taste of the amazing hits that this studio musician in Los Angeles, James Gaxon, was doing. And definitely, when we're talking about rhythm and blues and the beat, we got to talk about James. So let's get back to that interview. Is there anything you wanted to add, Jonah, on what we're going to hear next? We're just going to hear more stories from him, especially with some experiences with other people that he met along the way. Now, I did do in the 90s with the famous Eddie Harris. I traveled with him and did some jazz work, which was great. And he was very underrated and great. He was, uh, he would put the saxophone mouthpiece on the trumpet and play it. I put the trumpet mouthpiece on the saxophone and play it. He, it wasn't no joke, you know, he, he really played it and played good piano. And he had the Tibetan monk thing where he could get three-part harmony, you know, singing. And so I, it was, that was another learning experience that I had, you know, so that was great, 
you know, I got to do that in the 90s. And I played with Maceo for a minute, you know, and I came on back in. And, uh, you know, I'm just I'm enjoying it. I just finished a record with uh, Corin Bailey Ray, who's uh, from the UK. I think she had on she had a big hit called Turn On Your Radio or something at one time. And uh, I just finished a thing with her where we did a video and and uh, the last of her recordings was her record will come out next year, which was great. You know, it should be wonderful. And then I was blessed enough to uh, work with D'Angelo. I did some of his recordings and I was one of the writers on the song called Sugar Daddy that was a single. And that was a great thing, you know. He was very gracious in, uh, you know, by letting me have something for my contribution, you know. What were some of your experiences with Beck? Beck is, you never know what's, what's going to happen. That's, I love that because when you go in, you never, I mean, I've, I've recorded a lot of stuff and have, I, you know, I hear, maybe I hear it sometimes. I don't know what but I mean, you never know what he's gonna do, and I just I love that. Beck will try all different sorts of things, and I like that. That's it's just great to be in there with him, you know. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. I was also gonna ask you um, about the DVD that you put out because I know part of your background coming up as a musician, getting help from other people, you want to give that back and and I think your DVD was part of that process they wanted me to do a video and so I did all the uh, rhythms that they had used you know and a lot of the stuff that they use now that, that they got from those rhythms and uh, it's, it's pretty much like a, a Bible you know it's got a lot of different things for drummers you know, and you know, I did that to give, to give back, so that they could see what, where this came from, from the R&B standpoint. You know, because it's it's quite different now because we have uh, the drum machine, which they, the 2.1 Land drum, was me. You know, but uh, then, you know, all different regions of the United States people played a little different and you could tell now you can't hardly tell with the drum machines and stuff but um, I tried to uh, emulate the East Coast Detroit and the West Coast and you know I tried to emulate those things and I had been a part of a lot of that you know so that was uh, it was good to do at one time and I used to hear myself all day long where the guys had sampled me all day long, but there was no compensation for that at the time. I think the union, they, for some reason or another, they don't they uh, don't have the personnel or whatever it is to get to the people. I mean, I'd be doing quite well if I collected, but they don't. I think they pay maybe fifteen dollars a song or something like that. I think that that's not fair for the musicians because the writers get, you know, the, what they call samples. Well, the writers get that. And I think, you know, if the writers get the nation, the musicians should get something, I would think. You know what I mean? So that, I think, is not that nice, you know. But all in all, I mean, I'm grateful that I was able to uh, play on all these records because 
it was got so bad out here. I mean, I was I worked a couple of jobs, and I said, well, if you know, if I just get to hear myself on the radio, I'll be happy, you know, because I thought it was over with, and I was too proud to go back home. You know, I didn't want to go back to Kansas City, a failure, you know. But uh, yeah, I, you know, I mean, now overseas they got what they call a, they got an organization called PPL, and I've done a lot of recordings, foreign recordings, as they call it. So I get a little something for that. They pay the musicians uh, a fee when the records are played on the radio. They don't do it here, you know. It's unfair to the musicians. It's unfair, you know. Let's let's you know let's be real about it. It's unfair, you know. So I think that that's not fair at all. That part of it. And that was James Gadsden. I think something that I really pondered about what he just talked about was the idea of um, like no compensation and just not a lot of pay for doing a lot of work. And that's just like to me, that's so sad. And it's not deserving, obviously, but it's just a factor of the history of music and how so many people do not get paid very much for how much they work and and that's a great segue into Jewel Bass who was a backup singer and very essential to all music but definitely underappreciated and so um yes we're gonna uh, let's listen to what Jewel has to say about um some important elements of being a backup singer I will forever and always have loved doing gospel, but um, I just felt that I could do something besides the gospel, and so that's what I chose to do. And it was, it's been great. It's been fun. Tell me how that developed. A friend of mine, actually, um, came to me and told me that a singer in the band that he had was ill and couldn't show up. Uh, could, and just asked me if I could come and do a couple of songs with the band. I had never done this before. And so I told him, yeah, but I only knew one song. And, and that was Stormy Monday Blues. <laughs> so when I went to the gig, um, they called me up and everything, and I was nervous and, and new on the scene. And I got up there, and I did Stormy Monday Blues that first time, and I liked it so much. When they called me back up again, I said, well, we're going to do it again. And so that's what we did. So I had a gig. My first gig was two songs, but one song. <laughs> Both of them were the same. <laughs> so that's how I got started. Of course, after, after that particular gig, I was asked to join the band because the singer decided that they no longer wanted to do it. And I took over their place, you know, the place of that singer, and I became a part of the band. And after that, it was just go, go, go. It's been fun. That's fantastic. Yes. For me, it is. Yeah. yeah, it is. So was that a touring band, or did you have regular gigs? Well, we had, no, it was a touring band. Um, we were very young, and we wanted to go places and see things. So our agent, our booking agent, booked us all over the country, basically, you know. And, of course, some of the people in the band um, eventually got a little bit tired of the traveling and tired of living out of your luggage. Uh, so they decided to just stay in one place for a while. And we did become a house band for a while. 
Uh, but after that, it just kind of, that particular group just kind of broke up, and everybody went their separate ways. But we still keep in touch. Everybody's still friends and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So where where did you guys uh, play? Did you go outside Mississippi? Oh yes. Actually, we played mostly um, from. We did a lot of East Coast gigs um, back then, if I'm remembering right. A lot of East Coast type gigs, and even um, from I don't know Memphis and going on up that area. Our agent booked us if we were there. Say if we were in Memphis, then the best thing for him to try to do was to get us something, maybe in Arkansas or somewhere close, you know, around that area of St. Louis or someplace. And so that's how we tra- that's how we did that. From one place, we went to another place, and eventually we just came back home. And everybody started having families and stuff, so that made a difference too. Did you see that as a, a learning time for you as well? Oh, of course. Of course. I think I grew up um, traveling and, and, and doing that kind of thing. It just, you know, it actually showed me that I really did want to sing. And um, but I had family. I had family too, so I had to take into consideration what would be best for them. So I decided to stop being on the road so much and come back home and do some things here in in Mississippi, um, so that I could be with my family and stuff. Because they they were growing up, and I didn't want to want to miss out on that. And I didn't. I you know came back and was with them. Luckily. Fortunately, I was able to find work here in Mississippi enough to, uh, you know, to keep me doing what I like to do, plus be at home with my family. That was it. That sounds like a blessing. Oh, it was a blessing. It is a blessing. Yeah. Because yeah, now they're all grown. Huh. And, and um, they actually tell me how much fun it was, uh, me telling them all the stories or, or me bringing them back something from New York or someplace, you know, when they were kids. And they just loved it. So they were happy. That's That's really cool. Tell me about some of the opportunities you've had here. I know you worked with uh, Malco and and places like that. Can we talk a little bit about some of those opportunities? Oh, sure, sure. Uh, Malico and I kind of grew up together, so to speak. I was, um, I had been singing background uh, for Malico since around, I guess it was around 1969 or something like that. Um, I started singing background for them around that time. And we just kept doing it over and over, you know, just. And I met so many people and um, I learned from so many people over there about recording and, and what's going on in there. and. If, all of that was a learning experience. Actually, it still is, you know, because you—it's always something different. And um, and if you listen, and if you're really interested in it, you can learn something with every session that you do. So yeah, Malico has been a big part of my life. That's really neat. Yeah. Yeah, we were over there yesterday. Great people. Oh, they are nice yeah. people. Yeah. Very nice people. And uh, like I said, they've been a part of my life since around that time. So. Well, that's, I mean, that's nearly 50 years. Exactly. So it's a little unfair for me to ask some of your favorite projects, but there must be a few highlights that must come to mind that were most meaningful to you. To be honest with you, everything was good. I mean, but 
some of the people that I most enjoyed doing background sessions for was like Johnny Taylor. Um, he was always very interesting. His music and everything was interesting and different. Um, and I also loved, I loved doing background work for Benny Lattimore. He is one of the nicest people I've ever met. And I just enjoyed doing his, his music. It was very nice. Although we've done background for plenty, plenty of other people, but those people, um, it kind of stood out for me because uh, I just really, really enjoyed their music. You know, and plus they were very nice. Yeah, tell me a little bit about Benny. I mean, what's to say? He's just a nice guy. He always has been. He's a total gentleman. Um, he's someone that I could I respect, and I, I actually look up to him. Uh, he's just a nice guy, and he taught me that you don't have to be mean because you're a star. You know, you don't have to be like that. He was the nicest, most down-to-earth person uh, that I worked with, and I believe if, if any of the other girls that I was working with, they would probably say the same thing because every time a Benny Lattimore session came up. They were go, oh, I want to do that. I want to do that. I want to do that. But he was, a, he's just a very nice man. And he's such a great singer. He really is. I loved his music. Mm, that's wonderful. So tell us a little bit about how it works. It, or, um, is there a typical setup of how many backup singers? Is it always just females? Is there a combination? Oh, no. How does that work? No, it all depends on the artist, of course, what they want and um, what the songs call for. Mostly when I did uh, background sessions, there were three ladies. But now we've used uh, guys in the background session, which gives that uh, the vocals a different kind of a flavor when you use a guy. Um, but it all depends. Like I said, it all depends on what the artist or the record company or whatever, what they want. And we would bring in whoever, you know, whatever kind of sound that they wanted. So it's just not just three girls all the time. It could be two girls and a guy, or two guys and a girl. It didn't matter as long as you had that particular sound that they were looking for. So that's how that works. And did you get um, opportunities to provide your own thoughts about, well, what about this and that, or was it pretty straightforward what you were to do? No, most of the times we came up with the background parts. <laughs> Most of the time, and sometimes, every once in a while, um, an artist would come in and they would already know exactly what they wanted, which was no problem. We would just do exactly what they wanted. And by the end of the song, if it didn't sound right or if it didn't have that extra thing, the artist might say, well, what do you guys think? And then we would give him our suggestions. But um, you have to look at it kind of like a job. If your boss tells you, well, I want you to sing this part right here. Then that's what you do. But if you got the kind of boss that leaves it open to us putting in ideas or whatever, then we did that. But most of the times, we had very good people, so we would get a chance to make suggestions and a lot of times just come up with the whole background session work kind of thing, you know, which was a lot of fun. Very creative, too. <laughs> I bet. That must be the fun part. It is the fun part. Yeah. You get a chance to just get out of your, you know, get it out of your head and put it there. And a lot of most of the times it worked. Mm. It's neat. Mm. Yeah, it was neat.
So did you go back between um, popular music and, and did you also do uh, gospel recordings at Malico or not as much? Not as much gospel at Malico because Malico has a gospel uh, uh, section. You know, they have their own gospel thing there. Mm -hmm. So most of the times they would use gospel people that, you know, to do that. But I did get the opportunity mm -hmm. to do a couple of um, sessions with, uh, with gospel groups. The Williams Brothers, for one, and um, so it wasn't just R and B or blues or anything like that. It was a variety, of whatever. Like I said, whatever the company needed at the time, that's what we did. Whether it was gospel or whatever. That's neat. That keeps it interesting too, right? Oh, it, it keeps it very, very interesting. Like I said, every day if you're doing it, you can learn something. I mean, you know, with all the sessions, you learn something. All right, that was Jewel Bass. I just absolutely love this interview. It was such a delight to interview her at Mississippi Music in Flowood, Mississippi. That was a great time back in 2019. And, um, you know, what's really great about her career is that, that important thing that Jonah talked about, the backup singer who plays a vital role in music and especially rhythm and blues. And the recordings that she did at Malico Records there in Mississippi include uh, Sugar Britches in 1976 and uh, Let Your Love Rain Down on Me in 79, as well as backing up such singers as an amazing blues recording artists and rhythm and blues artists, ZZ Hill, Bobby Blue Bland, Little Milton, Little Milton, how cool was that? And Johnny Taylor, among others. So just so delighted to have her story as part of this podcast dedicated to rhythm and blues. You're listening to the Music History Project. If you want to see the interviews that the podcast is based on, go to nam.org slash library. And next, we're going to hear from the songwriter Fred Paris, who wrote In the Still of the Night. My first group, of course, was the Scarlets. And, and we were a rhythm and blues group, you know. At the, at the time, that's the type of music that we sang. And, um, and you know, I, I got to meet a lot of people doing that, too, you know, even on my records, you know, like Mickey Guitar Baker, and he was on my first record, as a matter of fact. Uh, most of the people that were on my records were rhythm and blues artists. There was no such thing as doo-wop at the time. We started, we were, had the Scarlets first. And we recorded for Red Robin Records then. And uh, I don't know how I changed that name to the Five Satins. I think it was because there were, there were a few other groups at the time, vocal groups, like the uh, Velvets and the Vocaliers and so on. That was when I first started recording for Bobby Robinson. And uh, he was one of the people that got me started in the, with that, you know. And I, you know, I started writing songs which I, I hadn't really planned on doing. I, I, I heard the other songs that people were recording, that, that groups were recording, and, uh, and I just tried my hand at it. And 
That's what happened. <laughs> Fell into it with the other groups like the Moongos and the Flamingos and people like that. Of course, they were way ahead of me. I didn't know how to write songs that they had. But, and in the still of the night, I don't know how that came about either, come to think of it. Because I wrote that in 1955, so that was a long time ago. <laughs> and I, I didn't expect the success that it, that it attained. You know, I never expected it to be like that. It was, to me, it was just another one of the rhythm and blues songs that people did, that other groups sang, you know, and that's, that, that was the way I got into that. Uh, I was just trying to emulate the other groups, I guess you could say that. But I did, I liked, the, I liked the song a lot. And it was easy to sing. And, uh, you know, with the, um, even with the doo-wops in it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we worked on it for a little bit, but it was recorded in the St. Uh, Bernadette. Bernadette's Catholic Church. And that had never happened before. I don't think anyone had ever, a rhythm and blues group, had ever made a record in a church. <laughs> or any, yeah, any religious, you know. But, yeah. <laughs> That's a nice memory. And I remember um, recording it in, you know, in the daytime. We didn't do it at night. It was at the daytime when we did that. And that was our first record. That and Jones Girl, by, by the Five Satins, that is. Yeah. As we had a little success with the, uh, with the Scarlets, uh, I was stationed in, well, Philadelphia at the time before I went overseas. And um, I, I finished the song while I was in Philadelphia. And nobody really knew how much success a song like that would be. But that's what happened. <laughs> I guess it came out in 56. And the first guy that played it was a DJ from Detroit. Well, he was in Springfield, Mass. first, because that's where I first performed that song. Um, but then when I went to Japan, when I went overseas, it was something brand new, you know, after the... the Frank Sinatra and Benny Goodman and people like that, after they went out. And the next thing that happened was rock and roll. You know, that was the way that happened. So this wraps up the first in a three-part series of Rhythm and Blues podcasts. Boy, this is a big topic. I've learned so much and there's so much more to learn. Alex? This was a great one. I'm really looking forward to the next episode. Me too.
I think we're going to do some connections with rock and roll and rhythm and blues. So exciting. <laughs> Looking into the future, my son. That's awesome. Hey, you know, my final thought is the appreciation and gratitude I have for uh, my three co-workers here uh, who helped put this together and helped edit it and put it all in uh, your ears. And also for the many people, too many to n- to name, honestly, but all of those who played a role in us capturing all these interviews that you just heard. It's a real pleasure to have this amazing collection of people, perspectives, and history. And I'm very, very proud about that. So with that, we will have a second part of Pioneers in Rhythm and Blues next month for you. But until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Dan Del Fiorentino, Suzanne Del Fiorentino, and Alex Rossner. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have ideas for future podcasts or recommendations for interviews for the Oral History Program, please send an email to library at nam.org. That's library at namm.org.